0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian and author Liam Byrne. Liam joined me on the show to talk about his new book, Becoming John Curtin and James Scullen. The Making of the Modern Labour Party, 1876-1921. I'm going to be speaking now with historian Liam Byrne, who has written a book called Becoming John Curtin and James Scullin, The Making of the Modern Labor Party, 1876 to 1921. And we're going to be talking about the early lives of these two men, and uh, I won't really give away much more, but it is important to note that if you if you yourself kind of reflect on these two men, I'm guessing that there might be one that you've heard of more than the other. And that's the case for probably nearly every person in Australia. And it's great to see that Liam has focused his attention on these two figures to give us a realistic and hopefully nuanced, and I'm sure it is nuanced because I read it and I felt that it was, depiction of these two men's early lives before... Uh, before they became Prime Minister, and how um, these kind of early times in their lives shaped them, their political views, and how that stayed the same or changed during their Prime Ministerships. So I welcome Liam Byrne now, who joins me on the phone. Hi there, Liam. How are you going? I'm good. How are you?
1: Yeah, well, thanks. It's, uh, you know, always nice to be back and moving about the first day after a long weekend. So I may have had one too many copies this morning
0: to apologise in advance,
1: but very, very glad to have a chance to talk about Curtin and Scullin.
0: Oh, that's totally fine. I've had about three shots myself, so I'm hopefully I'm awake, but you never know. Um, I'm really pleased that we're going to be talking about these two men who were part of the labour movement uh, very mm. broadly, and they had a very extensive early life in terms of their political interests and engagement and, um, I guess, participation in some of the major debates mm. within the Labor movement in this early 20th century uh, period. First up, I just wanted to touch on the fact that, you know, in our education, um, a number of people may have at some point come across John Curtin, um, but very few people, I would say, have not have come across James Scullen. And I can mm. say that personally... Um, I I did, but only because I took uh, higher education subjects in Australian political history, and that was when I did encounter James Scullin and some of the other figures, um, like Jack Lang, for example. Mm. And so I'm interested how you encountered these two figures and became interested in them in a historical sense.
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. And I suppose going back to my own sort of previous experience, it was very similar. You know, Curtin is somebody who... I just kind of feel has always been there, like he's always been part of the story and the way we tell the story of our country and our, um, our nation. So somebody who's always been there is that kind of emblematic figure, particularly at that um, wartime period when he did uh, lead us in such a significant and such a defining way. But Scullin is somebody who I think maybe perhaps if you read uh, or you take a course on the Great Depression, he may appear. Uh, but apart from that, it's pretty much absent from our history, which I think is um, an immense shame because he's somebody who made such an incredible and such a positive contribution, not just to the labor movement, but to Australia for um, decade after decade of public service. And he's somebody who really, you know, I've, I've come over the process of writing this biography to admire immensely. I suppose to me, like what it all came down to is I began my sort of research back in the PhD years, a few years ago. And I was really interested in looking at how politics was sort of lived and experienced by so-called ordinary people. So rather than looking just at parliamentarians and just at people at the sort of top end of politics, well, how was politics lived by those who were involved in social movements, the labour movement, for instance, the people who really sort of shapes the politics of the Federation on the ground? And the thing that really struck me when I was doing that research was just how often Curtin and Scullin's names appeared. And, of course, I recognise them immediately. I think, oh, it's interesting because these guys are going to go on to become prime minister. But the more and more I looked and the more and more their names sort of were there, these great moments, early Labor governments, the beginning of the First World War, the conscription debates of 1916 and 1917, and so on and so on, I noticed that there was actually something really there. There was a story that hadn't been told before about how they became the figures of influence and of intellect and of, you know, sort of great passion and belief who would then later lead the country. So I suppose it was kind of... Almost accidental is that I hadn't really realise when I began that research just how significant they were, but over the course of years of reading through, it just became evident that these people shaped our country in significant ways well before the period that we don't invest.
0: Yeah, and it is a particularly... Um interesting way to to get into these people by doing a a biography of of two individuals and i know that um as a historian you can often feel really attached or start to relate and feel close to the subjects that you're researching given the really um you know, I'm presuming rich primary documents that exist for these absolutely. two men. Yeah. How did you personally start to relate and understand these men as individuals and individuals that um, were, I guess, very full people? They weren't just politicians. There was a lot more to them than being eventually prime minister.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are, is a real variety of the, what's available. So, for instance, with um, Scullin. A lot of his personal records were actually destroyed before he died, um, which is such a shame for a mm. biographer. Um, and you know, no, nothing malicious in that. It was just the, you know simply the case that he didn't really consider them to be, um, you know, that's a different posterity, I guess. I mean, that's, it is not really ascertained why um, he did that. Just kind of regular house cleaning. Whereas the curtain is actually a lot more available and some really significant archives. And some wonderful historians um, have done great work, David Black in particular, sort of collating some of those materials. And so you can actually, if you're, people are interested in reading some more of his um, his direct words, you can actually gain a lot of the letters that he wrote uh, when he was a young person, which are really, you know, illustrative. But one of the things both of them did, um, of course, is that both of them for extended periods of time were newspaper journalists or newspaper editors. And so there's actually a really, really extensive record that hasn't... Uh, before really going through it in as much detail as like I have gone through in this earlier period, where they talk about, you know, of course, politics, but also so many other different interests. You get a real sense of you know, their love of literature, you know, their love of sport. Um, you know, Curtin, in particular, was a, you know, a very, very avid uh, footballer and cricketer. Perhaps his, uh, his passion for it outstripped his talent for it, but you know, it's something that's really, really important for him in his life. You, know, you can read some of Curtin's early love letters, when you read um, some of the Scullin's initial speeches that he gave at the um, South Street Debating Society in Ballarat, like all, there's all this material which is there to be read and to be found. And when you read it, you get a real sense, as you said, um, in, in their question that these are real human being. You know, one of the things that really moves me uh, when I read about it is there's this one report of Curtin's first major public speech that he gave um, when he was a member of the Socialist Party. And the person who's writing it, which... He's a little bit cruel in some ways. He begins to talk about how nervous he is and the sort of anxiety that he clearly was expressing on stage. And it's just amazing to think that Curtin, who's widely regarded as one of the great parliamentary orators, at some point was standing before an audience for the first time, giving his first big speech. And just imagine, well, how would you feel as a young person you know, involved in politics who's doing that? And that's what I think is really interesting about this kind of coming-of-age, um, you know, political coming-of-age story is that you can see all the different ways that they became the figures that we know best rather than sort of reading the story backwards, which I think is something which is quite inspiring and hopeful for people who want to change the world today or people who want to be involved in um, politics and political changes. that these great figures, you know, they started somewhere too.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the early years of the Labor movement and then the Labor Party um, were characterised, as you say, um, by socialist and moderate intellectuals and power breakers power brokers of the labor movement who all or both sides competed to stamp labor with their project and there was this constant contestation of ideas that you come back to and you highlight throughout this book um, between uh, these two sides and no doubt there was a bit more to it than two sides but um, it did lead to a number of um, divisions and splits and uh, as we can tell in in modern day times um, it's often said that you know division is death um, in any party however you start to um, demonstrate throughout this book the fact that actually this really great contest of ideas um, and these very strong debates actually uh, pushed labor forward really far in terms of um, where its policy platforms developed could you talk about how um John Curtin and James Scullin, uh, represented some of the debates of the time and where they sat on the spectrum within the Labor movement?
1: Yeah, that's a a really great uh, question. And of course, I think for a a lot of people today, it seems quite, you know, uh, counterintuitive to say that political division can actually be positive, because the, the way political division has been expressed in Australia in recent times has been very, very personalised and very, very bit up. You know, you think about the antagonism between Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, uh, to extend that from Turnbull, Scott Morrison, and so on, and that's just how it's been. But what we're talking about here is that sort of idea that there are, you know, people who are uh, combined broadly speaking around a common political project, which Curtin and Scullin were. They both believed in, you know, uh, the workers' movement and the Labour Party, but having different ideas of you know, the content of that and what that meant. And of course, the ideas changed over time as well. But in this earlier period, what you're really talking about is that, for you know, for Skullin in particular, he was somebody who very much expressed the tradition uh, of the Labour Party being for absolutely for transformative democratic reform, but who believed that any idea of socialist transformation, while being appealing to him in some way, uh, was for very, very, very far down the future track, something to worry about in many, many years' time, uh, after he he said workers have been educated to that project and what it meant. And so he was really focused on, yes, socialism is a great goal for the future, but what he wanted to deal with was the immediate need for social change in Australia, considering the sort of conditions as they existed. And so that led to him to you know, advocate a number of major transformations. And that's the thing. Is I don't want the term moderate uh, to sort of explain in the book. There's moderate in that sort of context. But moderate doesn't mean he was against reform or he was against change. He very much wanted substantial change to make Australia a more decent and equal place. Whereas the Curtin, there was a different sort of imperative where he believed that socialism was not something that you know, needed to be delayed to a far-flung future, but actually was something that was realisable and achievable in the, um, in the immediate term. He fought Australia at various points, particularly after the Second World War uh, – uh, sorry, after the First World War, I should say. Uh, he believed that it was something that was, could potentially be on the cards in the immediacy. And his plan was to work not to, for socialism as a distant future, but as an immediate prospect. And you sort of see that in everything that he does, one of the big ones being pushing the program for the Labor Party itself to adopt a socialist um, objective and to declare itself an out-and-out socialist party, which is something that Curtin in this stage very adamantly believes in. And those different tensions about, you know, what, what, you know, firstly, what does socialism mean? Because, of course, we today consider socialism in a very different way um, than they did in the early part of the 20th century. We different associations with it and so on. Instead of debating, you know, what does socialism mean? How do you get there? How extensive a change are you actually going to require? And what does that mean for the shape of Australia as it currently exists for them and the political projects of trying to change that? So it's, you know, all the the sort of big principle debates immediately go into sort of strategic debates and tactical debates and so on. So it's really, you know, not just how do you think Australia should be at some point far down the future, but, you know, how is your political practice now attempt to achieve that tomorrow and what we could become as a country? So it's really, really, you know, um, rich it's really, really fulfilling sort of traditions of debate and particularly for Curtin and Scullin, they did have different sort of perspectives but they didn't clash on that personal level. Like They weren't going out there sort of trying to cut people down um, in this sort of like insulting, mean way in public debate. It was about those principles, about that project and about politics as being a higher calling and a higher cause.
0: Yes, it does seem quite remo- removed from our current uh, situation. <laughs> sure <does. laughs> yeah. sure um, Yeah. In terms of the socialist objective... I mean, some people may not quite understand its significance uh, to the Labor Party and also to its constitution, but it has been kind of written in to the constitution for a long time and it also has been a point of division or um, tension in within the Labor Party, even up until now, talking about just how immediate or urgent or... Um, Important, this socialist objective is to Australia, to Labor's platform and to its policy choices and developments. Um, Mm. So, in terms of that uh, objective specifically and its place within the Labor constitution, um, where did that come from in relation to these two men? Like, when did it start to appear and become debated? And has that debate changed uh, in terms of where we are now?
1: Yeah, great questions. So the the debate over the socialisation objective um, is something that's really been around since the, the Labor Party was formed. So when the, the Labor Party was first formed, uh, it was actually formed before the Australian Federation. So what you're really talking about in uh, actual terms is Labor Party there was a number of distinct colonial Labor parties rather than a single organisation. That kind of developed over a period of time. So you have one in 1891 being set up in New South Wales and one being set up in Queensland. And, of course, with everything to do with Australian states, a lot of debate about which one was first, and which one, you know, all that sort of uh, stuff. But really what you have from the, the get-go is a series of people from different parts and traditions of the Labor movement coming together to form this political organisation to be the political expression of the Labor movement in the parliamentary realm and also more broadly in politics. And so that meant that it was very much a kind of coalition-based party. You have different sort of um, political ideas and temperaments of people coming together underneath that basic objective. So from the 1890s in New South Wales, for instance, there were major debates that took place between socialists and sort of more moderate-minded uh, Labor members about what the future of the party was going to be. Now, the socialists at that time decided that the best thing to do was to leave the Labor Party in New South Wales and to try and set up their own organisations. something that was spectacularly unsuccessful. Well, in Victoria, where Curtin was, there was a different sort of idea, which was for socialists like Curtin, what they did was that they remained in the Labor Party and they tried to organise uh, within it and organise their own groups. And Curtin was very, very strongly influenced by somebody called Tom Mann, who was a, a famous British radical who came over to Australia for a number of years and who helped to create this sort of po- this political project of trying to change Labor for a socialist party from within. And so what you have is basically from 1905, up until 1921, when the Labor Party formally adopts this objective, is this debate that's constantly going on in the background between people like Curtin, who want to see the Labor Party be transformed into a socialist organisation and to be explicitly so, and those um, who oppose that sort of objective and think that Labor, you know, that's too radical, it goes too far, um, and that that will sort of miseducate people on what the party is all about. And Scullin's position on that is quite interesting and sort of changes over time and becomes quite strategic. But that's the sort of origins about, well, what is the Labor Party going to be? Are is the party going to be a you know an organisation that flat out declares itself a total socialist transformation, or is it one that's more likely to say that it's yeah, inspired by socialism, but it's, you know it will actually pursue is a reform based project for the immediacy? And so that's been kind of the debate over a long period of time in with the ALP. I think now they have to say that there is a, a different debate that's going on around um, the objective, insofar as there is one. You know, I, I don't think you know most people who are in the uh, Labour Party are going. Uh, you know, waking up in the morning, obsessing about the status of the socialist objective. But there is definitely a feeling from some people that it's um, within the organisation we've seen in, you know, declared numerously in previous years, that it doesn't really represent the sort of the modern vision of the party in the 21st century and what it's seeking to aim and to pursue. Uh, And others who see it uh, as remaining a sort of a lodestar, like a significant um, connection to the past and tradition of struggle that's existed before. And I think that, of course, you know, the way history sort of moves on is that people tend to... Uh, looks back on their previous debates and sort of only see the discussions that are useful for their arguments today, whereas what I try and do is go back and put them back in the context of the time to understand the meaning and significance of, you know, what the socialist objective was in 1921 rather than necessarily what it is for people in 2020 looking back on 1921. Like, I'm trying to recast for Curran and scale, like, what were they talking about? What was the meaning for them? Why was this such a substantial debate? And why was it one that then sort of led to such emotional attachment to this objective? Which even is, you know, among some sections of the Labor Party today.
0: Yes, yes, there certainly is. Um, and it can be uh, pretty... Heated at times because, um, as you know, the social democratic aims of the Labor Party have been um, wavering <laughs> at times and some people still want to go back to that. So um, it'll be interesting to see how things do arise. I know that every conference there is kind of a debate as to whether the socialist objective should be kept in there. Um, but, yeah, it is, it's is—it's an interesting debate to look at. I'm glad that you say that as a historian um, that's what your, your aim is, is to look at how these things work were for the time. And I think that's something that um, for the layperson who's not a historian, um, it's important to keep in mind is that we're we're thinking and looking at a context that is very, very different to the one we're in right now. And sometimes it's tempting to look back uh, with a judgment or a lens that is from now instead of trying to understand the past context that these comments and policies are coming from.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a real challenge as well because, you know, mm. we, we know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, one of the great privileges, one of the great sort of benefits that we have looking back uh, in time, but the, the reality is that people are acting with no real sense of, you know, what's going to happen. They, mm. they don't know. I mean, there's extraordinary potential changes. So the things that we look back, for instance, with the, um, you know, the outbreak of the First World War, for instance. Like, we know that that's coming in 1914. Like, we know, looking back, that there's going to be, a, you know, the people who are thinking one thing is going to uh, be the most important sort of project over the next few years are about to confront something radically different, and they've got no idea it's coming. Um, you know, this, you, we have the ability to look back and sort of see that, but people at the time were acting, you know, based on the conditions and the realities around them, that they were trying to shape and change, but weren't always to their control. And you think about things, for instance, for, you know, Joe Scullin, I think that's one of the the, the immense tragedies of his career was that he was somebody who, you know, we know looking back about the Great Depression now and so on, and we know what that meant and the effect in his role in it. Well, he was somebody who didn't know that when he was working towards it. You know, you think this is a guy who reaches the pinnacle of his um, career just weeks before the – by becoming Prime Minister, I should say – just weeks before the Great Depression breaks out and fundamentally transforms everything that he's, you know, attempting to do. Like, it's, uh, you know, we have – Benefits that they don't have at that sort of time, and I agree with you. I think that you know, making sure that we keep in mind what they were thinking, the way they were interpreting the world, is very, very important to understand who they actually were, because you know, we we just plain know things that they don't.
0: Yeah, yeah, and um and our values have since shifted uh, as well. So that's another major area of difference. Um, in terms absolutely, and
1: that's what, my, what I talk about the book is, you know, yeah. the world is drastically different from ours. And I think that it's really important and really significant. But while looking back, and I think it's overwhelming stated, say that there are a lot of positives to take from their worldviews and their understandings of the world, but there are also things that thankfully are completely different now that we have moved on, but we absolutely don't want to excuse or justify their positions on. And, you know, that's, again, looking at any of the figures from that early period... Of the Federation, you have to confront those sort of things. I mean, for instance, one of the things you have to confront is that there was a wide-held belief in that time in the policies of, the, of racial exclusion, the racist policies that underpinned the White Australia policy. And, you know, the so sort of thing is, by no means do I attempt to uh, excuse or justify the fact that both of these men, in different ways and for different reasons, ultimately supported that policy, which is something that I think we have to be honest about. And we have to say there is no, you know, no excuse or justification for that part of their worldviews. And that's something. Any of these figures, if we're going to, as a country, be, you know, confident about ourselves and moving ahead, and be a future-oriented sort of uh, citizenry as we should be, we need to look back on these historical figures and have a real open accounting of that part of their sort of uh, politics at this time.
0: Mm, Exactly. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about them. It means that we need to talk about them with our eyes wide open and the full facts in front of us, which is what this book does. Um, And one of the chapters covers a really tumultuous time in Australian history that I... I really am not sure that people quite realise just how um, significant and divisive and, uh, you know, just how much of an upheaval um, this time was, but it was the conscription debates and referendums which happened in 1916 or started in 1916. There were two of them um, and that were being pushed by the Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, and these were really, really... um, there was a lot of civil unrest. There was a lot of there was even violence, yeah. and there was a, a huge number of issues that came up within the Labor Party that were tied to conscription. And you highlight some of these issues, including um, the race issue and white Australia, and immigration, as well as class issues, um, and an, and a number of others. And I wonder whether you could talk about uh, John Curtin and James Scullin and how they were involved in the conscription debates and what significance they. had Had in those times.
1: Yeah, and it was extraordinary times. You know, it's the sort of thing that really there should be a Netflix series about the conscription uh, debates, I think, because they're so uh, rich and so impassioned and so formative to Australia and and what our country is and became. So the, the real origins for the conscription debate itself. Uh, was for a number of years before then that there'd been um, sort of a policy that had existed amongst a number of parties, including the ALP, to support compulsory military training for young men, for home defence. So in other words, the idea that you need to train people to, uh, well, particularly young men, to be able to defend Australia. And so that was something that uh, Scullin supported, but Curtin adamantly opposed. And so 1916, of course, this is two years into the, uh, the First World War. It's a period of time when you're seeing a transition to the, uh, particularly on the Western Front, to a new type of um, fighting, extremely brutal, uh, heavy casualties and so on, uh, you know, industrialised war, really. And it's a time when there was a sort of demand that was coming uh, for more and more troops to be, uh, be mobilised and to be sent. And so Billy Hughes, who was, the, he was actually a Labour Party Prime Minister, but he went to Britain uh, for a tour, and then came back and declared that this was you know, uh, the way that we were going to proceed. Was that he wanted to have a, a, a conscription uh, policy passed that would then mean that Australian uh, men, as, uh, as, as it was a gender sort of uh, proposal, were going to be mobilised to be sent to fight in Europe. So what happened was that the while that was officially the parliamentary Labor Party's sort of um, their position, um, for the majority of the party, but for people who were in the union movement in particular and outside of uh, Parliament, that they opposed this proposal overwhelmingly, and Curtin and Scullin became really, really significant figures in this. Curtin was completely opposed to conscripting people to fight at all at this point, whereas Scullin was completely opposed to the idea of compelling people to fight in Europe if they didn't want to. So he still believed that you could conscript people to defend Australia, but he didn't believe that you could conscript them to send them over to a different continent to fight a war there so if Australia wasn't directly under threat. And so together, they they, um, were part of this massive movement um, that was organised and predominantly run by the union movement at the time, Uh, which is about mobilising people to vote in a... um, a, Well, There's a debate over whether or not it was a plebiscite or a referendum, which has kind of been confused in recent times by that, but it it didn't affect the Constitution, but it was a mass public vote. Uh, And the reason why there was a mass public vote was because uh, Billy Hughes, he wanted to basically kind of get public authority and public support for this proposal, because he was quite worried that a number of the senators in the Labor Party who were backed by the union movement wouldn't vote to enforce conscription. So he wanted to get this kind of like public vote to show support um, and very, very much expected that the public would come out and support uh, the proposal for military conscription. Now, there's a number of factors that made this more complicated uh, for Hughes. I mean, for instance, there was uh, the 1916 Easter uprising and the very, very brutal repression of that in Ireland um, by the British colonial occupying forces there meant that a lot of the uh, Australian-Irish population became quite antagonistic to this idea of, uh, you know, serving the uh, British imperial... uh, Forces in Europe, um, but by and large the main reason why the conscription um, movement began and was so uh, fueled in the way it was was because the, the unions at the time decided that this was the sort of issue that they needed to sort of make clear that they did not support people being conscripted against their will to fight on a different continent. And they were also very concerned by what had happened um, in Europe where conscription had also been a means to enforce what was known as industrial conscription, so basically where military methods were used in industry to strip away any last vestiges of rights that workers had in the war economies of Europe. So they were very, very concerned about what this meant for liberty and freedom and democracy in Australia, and so they mobilised a massive campaign. Curtin was actually the secretary of that campaign, so he was basically um, you know, the person who ran uh, the you know, from the grassroots level up, the entire sort of uh, anti-conscription movement is his first position of national prominence. And Scullin became a very, very famous uh, sort of, uh, well, propagandist would be the term, but sort of commentator and somebody who writes frequently in his, was the editor of a newspaper called The Evening Echo, which is based in Ballarat. And so this is a time of censorship. This is a time where there was, you know, active sort of uh, opposition by the uh, government itself to people who were trying to... Uh, uh, Campaign for the anti-conscription side, so you have sort of these amazing sort of stories of the Ballarat Evening Echo, which Scullin was uh, was editing, being printed in the tens of thousands for the duration of his campaign, and being smuggled from Ballarat into Melbourne by train drivers and sort of uh, you know underneath their seats and all sort of stuff. And (laughs) they're pulling out these giant stacks of newspapers to distribute around uh, Melbourne. You know, sometimes with uh, the eyes of censors upon them. And this is a very serious sort of time. Like Newspapers were being censored. They were being shut down. There were military raids on um, editorial offices and so on. Trade Hall in Melbourne was raided uh, at one point by military police. So it was a very, very serious sort of issue. But through this campaign, because they were aimed at mobilising popular sentiment and sort of making the call that this was about defending democracy, actually, in the end, the uh, campaign against conscription was successful in 1916, which nobody was really expecting. Like, people kind of fought mm. with the government, most of the press. Most of the churches, uh, even, you know, all supporting conscription, people really, really generally thought that they were going to... Um, ..the pro-conscription side was going to win. And so it was just a shock. It was absolute sort of thunderbolt through uh, Australia to have this happen. And both Curtin and Scullin, because of this campaign and their role in it, this is the moment where they go from being sort of kind of well-known locally, well-regarded locally, to figures of real national prominence and significance. And some of the postscripts of that story is that at the end of 1916, Uh, Billy Hughes was actually expelled formally from the Australian Labor Party. It was James Scullin who moved the motion to expel him, uh, which is quite an extraordinary thing when you think at the beginning of 1916, James Scullin was the editor of a relatively small union-backed newspaper in Ballarat. By December 1916, he was somebody who was making national headlines as expelling the Prime Minister from his own party.
0: Yeah, it's a massive time um, and certainly that 1916 split had huge repercussions and um, certainly Billy Hughes, I know a lot of people, given his like loyalty to Britain and his continual pushing of conscription... I mean, a lot of people kind of thought he didn't quite belong there anymore, um, given his views and the fact that he didn't accept that first plebiscite result as the ultimate answer. He kept pushing and pushing, and then we had another vote again. Um, in terms of that split, where did uh, John Curtin stand on things?
1: So John Curtin, as I mentioned, so he was the he was called the secretary of the national um, executive of the anti-conscription campaign. So he was somebody who was very, very much sort of engineering the union uh, campaign and mobilisation against conscription. So he was very, very strongly for um, the union side to defeat conscription and, uh, when it came to it, to getting Billy Hughes out. So he was immediately after the conscription uh, campaign had been successful in 1916, he was saying, this guy is not going to stop. And he was actually warning that they actually... He may just try and introduce it through parliament. He may find other ways, and this guy's going to try and do it. And it was because, you know... Some would suggest the, the strong mobilisation. In fact, there was this kind of campaign machinery in place that sort of made that not an appealing idea for Billy Hughes. He at least waited a year before he tried to do it again and through mm-hmm. another campaign. Um, but, you know, he was very, very serious about the proposal quite clearly. And one of the things that may be interesting for people to know is that um, there was actually a call-out uh, that was delivered during the 1916 campaign for uh, men of military age to come, to be, basically go into uh, camps to be prepared to, for military training. Uh, and this was something that obviously the people who opposed conscription seized upon and sort of said, well, look, this shows that they're, um, you know, even though the vote hasn't happened yet, they're still making these moves to try and threaten us uh, and to push us towards conscription. And so it's something that some have suggested really, really damaged Hughes's cause. But it's also a time when Ferdinand refused to go. You know, he was leading the anti-conscription campaign. He was literally the head uh, of this campaign. And so he refused to go to his military call-up when Hughes did it before the conscription vote in 1916. And because of that, after the uh, vote had taken place, he was actually arrested and he was uh, taken to trial. Uh, He was defended by a famous Labor lawyer at the time, Maurice Blackburn, but he ended up spending a period of time in prison, three days uh, in Pentridge. So if anybody, uh, you know, around that complex these days, uh, maybe a lot of residential uh, sort of parts of that complex, that that was actually somewhere that Curtin went. And he went there because he opposed his call-up of people during the anti-conscription campaign, and that makes him the only Australian Prime Minister to have served time in prison.
0: Yeah, that was actually one of the most fascinating anecdotes for me, um, because I had not encountered that. And it's um, shocking to think, and it seems like, as you wrote, uh, Curtin wasn't really uh, made out for jail life. And I know that Pentridge Prison certainly wasn't a walk in the park. Um, at that time, and (laughs) nowhere near our jail systems now. Um, But he he did say something, and you quote him as saying, "Um, that beastly old jail put its brand on me. I haven't the temperament not to still feel the narrowness of the cell and the damnation of its equipment.
1: Yeah, which is it's quite striking. It's also um, probably the other part of the story I should have mentioned, which is with that, is that in 1916, you know, this is a period of time where uh, Curtin, as people will be aware, had, uh, particularly as a young man, a number of difficulties with alcohol. Yes. Uh, and it was uh, something that, you know, he on a number of occasions had like really, real serious difficulty in terms of his, um, you know, basically falling into, you know, I, I hate to use the term, uh, again, casting back, which is... I think mean, that could be a bit problematic, but, you know, kind of press states uh, where he relied on alcohol quite heavily. And he had a major, major episode of this nature early in 1916. Um, and it was something that he then had to go to, um, basically to go to a recovery uh, sort of hotel, sort of work through the process of trying to, you know, to dry himself out, I guess a better term. And so this happened, you know, a, a very, very severe sort of emotional experience. And then immediately after that, he was leading the national campaign against conscription. And then immediately after that, he was in prison you know, it's, a, it's quite an extraordinary year and series of events for him. And not too long after he actually left Victoria to uh, move to Western Australia, which, of course, is the next big part of his story and his sort of step towards the prime ministership. But it was, you know, as I say in the book, I don't think there is a more significant year In their their political lives before they become prime ministers, then 1916 for both of them that was the turning point. That uh, sort of led them from being well-regarded local figures to becoming figures of national prominence. And you know, going to prison was obviously a horrendous experience for Curtin, but it was something that did, you know, aid his career. Obviously, it wasn't a purposeful thing, but there was a lot of. He became a martyr of the movement in many ways. The guy led the national campaign, then he was thrown in prison for it. So something, you know, that gets noticed and, you know, people held him in a lot of very, very high regard for the fact that he held that principal position. And it was one thing that, you know, about Curtin consistently throughout his life was that when circumstances demanded it, no matter how tough it was, he held his principal position.
0: Mm. Yes, and that is, as we know, something particularly rare in politics, but... uh probably more rare now. Now, <laughs> I do want to talk about um, the immediate aftermath of that first campaign, uh, because you do note that there was a 1917 federal election um, with obviously a, quote, newly purified ALP, thinking that mm. they would um, you know, potentially be victorious in this election, coming up against uh, Billy Hughes, who was now leading a nationalist party. Um, but unfortunately, it did go Labor's way and uh, but I was interested that you noted the reason why uh Scullin in particular was okay or not okay with it but perhaps um satisfied with that result was because Hughes had only been elected or won by promising not to impose conscription
1: yeah that's right which is uh you know uh, <laughs> over time people began less and less to believe Billy Hughes's promises <laughs> for <laughs> a reason and uh yeah, you know, there was a lot of uh, skepticism. And uh, one the things to say about, you know, Scullin as well was that he had served in Parliament with Hughes. Um, Scullin was a member of Parliament from 1910 to 1913 uh, in Karengamai. So he actually knew him quite closely um, in that period. Well, you know, don't want to understand it, most like their best friends or anything. But, you mm. know, he, he worked with him, he knew him, and like many people in the Labor movement, he built up great admiration for Billy Hughes. Like, Billy Hughes was well-known and well-respected before he became Prime Minister. So there was reasons why he kind of uh, so Scullin would have a certain emotional attachment to him, which Curtin never really had, uh, which is interesting, of course, because Hughes would remain in Parliament up until you know Curtin was Prime Minister in the Second World War and um, yeah. you know, played quite a prominent role in some debates. So he's, he's definitely a stayer, uh, but not exactly known as being somebody uh, of the highest principle, uh, which is probably one of the great distinguishing features between he and uh, Curtin and Scullin. But so I suppose that's one of the things you say about that period is that what Scullin was drawing solace from, which Curtin didn't in 1917, was that Hughes said that he wanted to impose conscription, but he also began to uh, basically propose a series of labour's policies and claimed them as his own and said, this is what we're going to do, things which were about, you know, not ma- making working people pay for the cost of the war. And then pretty much immediately after he was uh, in power, all those promises were dropped. And that, again, is a, a theme in, uh, with some parts of our political system, I'm afraid.
0: So. yeah. Well, I know that Billy Hughes had a very strong personality and that was both attractive and repulsive in e- equal measure potentially with depending on what side of the the spectrum you fell in um, but it yeah, yeah it is interesting to see other politicians and parliamentarians comment upon the character of, of these politicians um, when they become Prime Minister a bit later on um, I do also want to touch on um, these two men in a couple of other ways um, I do want to ask about John Scullen and sorry James scullen in particular given that we're not as familiar with him um, broadly and kind of understand uh, how he came to power, I know this is probably you know a lot more um, into the future, but I wonder how um, he, what his significance is today in terms of his prime ministership and um, and how his early years influenced the way that he behaved and um, and conducted himself during his prime ministership, which of course, as you said, was uh, during the Great Depression and was certainly no easy feat to to manage the country during a time like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, like his story is just, it, it's just fascinating. Um, and is somebody who I said before is, you know, his contribution to Australia as well as the labour movement is much under-recognised and under-appreciated because of that period of government which is just sort of focused on. But, you know, somebody over many, many decades thought seriously about our country, where it was heading and where it needed to be. Uh, it was an extraordinary contribution. So he was born uh, in 1876, so, which means that his early life was actually shaped by the Great Depression of the 1890s. Mm. So he's talking about great depressions. People think about 1930s, but actually there were many depressions, unfortunately, that sort of shaped people's political ideas and consciousness. And Scullin was somebody who, his life opportunities were fundamentally transformed by that great depression, and it was something which he always warned against, the idea of returning to it. And throughout his entire political life, he sort of said back in that period, it was working people who bore the cost of that depression, and he was looking for ways to make sure that that wouldn't happen again. And this is probably one of the great, the greatest tragedies of Scullin's life, really, was that from his early career, from 1906 when I sort of begin telling his story in earnest as a you know, political activist all the way up to when he was Prime Minister, he was warning against the factors that would lead to the Great Depression, effectively. And you know, in, he was in Parliament briefly from 1910 to 1913 um, after he was uh, he, he was unable to win an election in a rural city in 1913. He became a very, very well-known newspaper editor, which is backed by uh, one of the major unions at the time and was you know, really influential in the public debates, which led to him becoming a uh, member for the seat of Yarra in 1922 and increasingly through the 1920s becoming a prominent Labor sort of figure, warning about the, uh, basically the, the fact that the conservative government at the time, originally by, led by Billy Hughes and then by Stanley Bruce, was pursuing fiscal policies that were not preparing us for any crash that may come and any sort of problem that may arise. And so the tragedy is that he spent the entire 20s warning against this, And then three weeks before the Great Depression breaks out, he's elected uh, as prime minister. So he's had none of the opportunity to implement the plans to actually prepare or to drive us in a different economic direction, and yet he has to deal immediately with the consequences of somebody else's mistakes. And that's one of the things which is really tragic about Scullin, was that immediately after he becomes prime minister, he begins to propose a whole series of measures of what he thinks the response should be. Uh, which are based far more on, um, you know, not not to the extent that would later develop and you would really say was probably necessary, but more on government intervention and stimulus and um, which is the term we use today, not necessarily then. And he was opposed in everything by a conservative-dominated Senate, by uh, the bank uh, banking institutions which did not hold the same sort of approaches as he had. They had totally different orthodoxies By a you know quite a hostile sort of uh, banking sector from Britain, which you know where a number of Australian loans were held and so on. So as as soon as he came to power, he just faced uh, this absolute stumbling blocks everywhere he looked from people who just were completely dedicated by principle and ideology to opposing his ideas of how you could actually try and deal with that crisis. And he was somebody who, as a result, I think he made a number of you know, wrong decisions during the Great Depression, but more than that, was ensnared by this sort of situation that he hadn't created and in many ways was out of his, outside of his control. And unfortunately, the way these things tend to work is because because he was the Prime Minister, he carries the responsibility and he's remembered in it uh, from history for the, all the mistakes that were made and uh, they all get laid on him, including the ones that his opponents and other people were making at the time. So it is quite a sad story uh, in that regard. I think that, you know, the, the way that the orthodoxy of the time was sort of emphasised you must cut uh, deficits, you must cut budgets, you must make sure so that loans are repaid as the primary... Uh, sort of emphasis at this time, that it's, you know, investing in the government, borrowing, that these are all bad things, even though they may stimulate consumption, because really the main problem is that, I mean, you're not drawing a massive bow between then and now to think about some of the ways the current economic crisis is being discussed in places around the world, to say that the debates around the Great Depression are specific to that time, but actually have a real resonance today. And I think, that, you know, like a lot of people look at sort of see some of the things that are happening around the world today. And I'm worried there's some of the lessons of that period of time and how that crisis was mismanaged and not being learned.
0: Mm, mm, Exactly. I'm speaking with Liam Byrne, who is a historian, and we're talking about his new book. Uh, It's called Becoming John Curtin and James Scullin, The Making of the Modern Labor Party. Now, um, I should cover off on John Curtin who we've also been discussing throughout this interview and um, as we've already prefaced he is a far more well known and recognised and in some ways deeply loved figure um, in terms of people of the party who know of him and and how he was as a person Um, it's interesting when you talk about his kind of character and the way he came across to people um, even in his early years as being quite aloof and and not really getting, you know, being part of those blokey bloke oh. conversations, which are very much something that dominates uh, politics even now. And I was interested in that fact that, you know, he still, um, even because he didn't, even when he didn't conform to these kind of behavioural norms and social ways of being in politics, he was still very much well-loved, deeply admired, and not just um, by his own party, but particularly by those uh, across the aisle who have written extensively about how deeply they felt for and um, loved this man. And, you know, even in my own research, looking into Enid Lyons, who was the first female um, representative in the House of Representatives, she even writes in her memoirs about just how much she um, admired him deeply, as did Joe Lyons, her husband. And, uh, And I wondered why this was the case, why someone like John Curtin, through your research, could be so uh, widely admired because that is quite a rare thing in politics.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and probably at that time, to be honest, that there was a bit more space for people to admire those on the opposite side. I mean, some mm. of the partisanship that we've come to understand today still existed, of course, and there were big personal antagonisms that existed, but there, were also, there was also a greater capacity to admire those who you didn't agree with but who you know, pursued genuinely public service where politics these days, because there's been such a, you know, people no longer are pursuing the big picture vision, yet they still maintain the antagonism and the hostility towards each other, you know, it's that kind of strange sort of development, whereas back then you could at least respect that people were pursuing, you know, a vision of Australia that you didn't agree with it, but you you understood that it was a genuinely held sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, that's a bit of a different thing in terms of the way politics is done. But I think for Curtin, you know, at a certain point, character just wins out, right? Like, he was mm. this guy who was a West Australian worker as a newspaper, and you get these amazing sort of accounts of his staff members where he would basically just walk through the hall with kind of, like, a bit vacant-eyed, talking to himself, because he was reading out the, what is going to become the next editorial that he's going to write. And it could quite often seem rude and abrupt. Like, he was often known for just walking out of conversations because an idea had come to him about the article, and he'd go and sit down and write it. And so, like, you could see, like, oh, what a strange, rude man you potentially... So what then would happen was that he would stop to people and ask them about a sickness in the family. There's something that he was the editor, he was the, he was the boss, but he would ask people who worked for him, you know, he would remember about their family, he'd remember about the people around him, like he cared and he showed that he cared in those little moments, which perhaps are not as sort of attention-grabbing, but there are ones that are more meaningful for that, the everyday sort of care and concern, and he showed that deeply for the people around him. But also, I think is that you could not meet Curtin, you could not talk to Curtin, you could not experience him this is something that people talk about without just getting that passion and conviction of what he stood for and what he believed in you know he was somebody who came across as genuine in the advances that he wanted for australia and you know i think that's one of the things that you know a lot of his opponents and so on when he was uh, you know pursuing it relentlessly perhaps found that quite frustrating and um, annoying because he was quite good at it and they didn't really want that to happen but it's hard not to admire somebody who believes so passionately you know, in, in what Australia can be and what it could be if things were a little different, and is willing to put his you know, entire political life behind trying to make that happen. You know, it's, it's quite an admirable uh, sort of trait, and it's something which I think is, you see in this book. Is that it's something that didn't just, he didn't be, uh, you know, get appointed Prime Minister and then all of a sudden have ideas about what he wanted Australia to be. He's literally spent decades of his life working towards this. And I think the reason why he's so well known and loved is, of course, because he was our leader in that great moment of, of crisis during the Second World War, but he's also the leader. At the time when we began to put in place not just what the war was going to be like, but what the peace was going to be like. When you look at things after the Second World War, such as full employment, the rise of uh, entirely new pension systems and welfare systems, expansion of education, all this sort of stuff, these things have origins incurred as actions in government. And that, you know, the, the contribution he made to Australia is the reason why he became so well loved.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it was really quite tragic that he did die um, just six weeks before the Japanese surrendered um, at the lodge. And I know that it was um, something that really was a national grief um, that a number of people uh, just felt. And no doubt it was a very tumultuous time and already an emotional time, given that so many people, Australians in particular, um, died overseas away from their families uh, during World War II. So uh, that no doubt does add another kind of level of mythology in a way to him and, and not actually being able to see the end of World War II.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And think that, you know, throughout his entire life, he campaigned against militarism. So mm. you know, somebody who, who wanted to oppose war. Like, in, you know, when, when it came to the Second World War and the process building up towards Curtin, he very much wanted actions to be taken that would prevent war from happening. But when it became inevitable, of course, he, he took the leadership and he, he took the positions that he felt were necessary to defend Australia. Like, yeah. you know, he, he, he was reluctant in so far as he didn't want war, but he wanted to defend Australia. That's what it was all about for him. And so, you know, the the great sort of tragedy and irony is after decades of campaigning for a more peaceable region, a more peaceable world, is that he did not serve a single day as Prime Minister in a time of peace. Uh, From 1941 till his death in July 1945, every single day was one of war. And, you know, it's one of those sort of things is that he's, for him, um, you know, the the tragedy of that and the, the difficulties of being leader in that sort of time, obviously compounded by his other health issues and so on leading to that um, in passing away and very much being seen at the time. You can see in the reportage people considered him to be a casualty of the war. Mm. Um, But, you know, again, I think the thing with Curtin is that the tragedy that you can experience from that, while it's very, very deeply um, sad and sort of something that you can look back on and regret, is to never forget that the inheritance of Curtin's leadership was, was peace. And it was the period that we had after the war when Australia was playing a really, really positive role internationally in pursuing programs of how do we actually make sure that our societies are not the type that are creating those wars again, that they are more equal, that they are more decent, that people do get, you know, it can work and we want to work, get jobs which are actually going to be fulfilling to them, um, and that prevent the sort of conditions of the, the Great Depression coming back and so on. Lessons unfortunately, that have in part been forgotten or, um, in recent sort of decades. But, you know, that peace, that experience of prosperity, that experience of, you know, of social equality to an extent that we hadn't had it before definitely wasn't complete, and I don't want to overemphasise that, and definitely wasn't shared by everybody. But the belief that Australia could be a more decent and equal place, that is Curtin's true inheritance, not the tragedy he had of never being able to experience that time of peace personally.
0: Mm, exactly. And um, I should note, and we've already kind of mentioned this and and covered it in a way, is that obviously uh, throughout um, Australia since Federation, the White Australia policy has been existent right up until um, Whitlam uh, implemented amendments in the immigration law in 1973 to end that policy formally. So um, during this period, there is a kind of accepted... Um, racism just built within and into Australia's political system, even into its legislation um, as well as its actions as a state and that's something which um, had become and was unfortunately uh, accepted among so many of um, Australians and it was as we, as we now know today, part of the majority um, view and, and beliefs. So that's one other kind of lens and element that, that runs throughout this story that you do raise in the various um, major moments in political history and you do... Um, I guess, encounter them and, and deal with them. In terms of how we do reconcile um, race and, and this kind of striving for social equality or at least um, a, a higher level of egalitarianism, how do you as a historian um, kind of deal with those uh, those tensions and things that are really front of mind at the moment?
1: Yeah, well, I think openly and honestly is the way you do it is uh, the only way that you can do it is mm. by pointing out exactly what it was that they stood for, putting it in the context of the time, as I said before, not excusing or justifying it. Um, you know, this this was their worldview. This was what they said. And I conclude in the book, like the um, Australia that we have today is different to the Australia that they lived in. And one of the, you know, Benefits is that uh, positive story say is that that sort of policy of racial exclusion was torn down um, eventually, and it's important to remember that it existed, and it's important to remember that this was something that was widely supported across across the political spectrum. Because we have to work as a society never to return to that sort of attitude and never return to those sort of policies. And so we have to be open, we have to be honest about it. And we have to confront the realities that this existed, as you say, all throughout the um, political system and the economic system. And we're talking about this time as well. It's also important to recognise that it wasn't just the uh, policies of racial exclusion that prevented people from coming to Australia. It was also the continuing policies of racism that existed within Australia at that time, both towards migrant communities but also towards the Indigenous population uh, of Australia as well, that there were discriminatory Mm. policies that were based around preventing Indigenous people from gaining equality and perpetuating the ongoing dispossession uh, that they experienced at that time and, of course, continuing today. So, you know, these these are things which are embedded within the Australian political system, the Australian economic system, Australian society and culture. Uh, we gain nothing from pretending that that is not the case and we uh, need to be open. We need to confront directly um, because that's the only way that we're ever going to become you know, truly able to deal with that reality in a way to make sure that our future does not represent it does not simply reflect those aspects of our past because you know our future cannot be built uh you know in misrecognition of what's actually happened in this country and the appalling sort of aspects of uh, sort of racialized inequality that have existed
0: yes absolutely. and continue to
1: exist yeah and continue to exist. Like i must emphasize that you know this is not historic like what exists today is a different form but it still exists today
0: yeah we have unfinished business um and as well also, we didn't touch on sex discrimination, but that's um, one other element that has been heavily entrenched and obviously was part of politics as well, given how long it took to have any women elected to federal parliament. It took so long, uh, which is something that I was quite surprised by. Um, just finally, in the conclusion, you do look at uh, labour, the Labor Party as we see it today – Um, which I found particularly interesting given that you, I know, work for the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, and and focus your mind on history there as well, and you make some kind of comments and remarks and observations on the labour party and where it's how it's changed where it's moved to and perhaps um, where some of these deficiencies are in terms of its ability to create a long-term vision and um, and you kind of draw in some of these learnings these historical learnings that we've gleaned from the book could you just perhaps um, briefly summarize your thoughts on that
1: yeah, well, um, just let me clarify firstly that the, the book is a product of my work at the, uh, at the University of Melbourne, uh, not my other professional role at the ACTU, which is a totally different thing, but um, as a citizen, as a historian, the work that I, what I was trying to say about the Labor Party is that I'm a deep believer in the ALP's continuing ability to be a positive transformative force in Australia. Um, And I hope that this book is very much seen as a, you know, as somebody who does believe in that tradition of a party that represents working people um, and, you know, modern Australia in all sort of different sort of forms, that within the political system, that there is still a capacity for big ideas, big transformative change, and for people who believe that Australia can be fairer and more decent and more equal to come together uh, through a party form like that and to actually have uh, the ability to transform the political system, but... I don't think that the way the party has been going in recent decades is able to do that, and I think that the you know the Labour Party has become uh, you know a party which doesn't dream as big as it can uh, in recent years, and I don't think it's a party that has been as willing to you know accommodate that sort of level of debate and disagreement and so on as it's had uh, in previous decades, and I do think that there's been a bit of a problem uh, in recent sort of decades that there's been a, a narrowing of who makes up the uh, parliamentary representatives of the Labour Party. That there's, you know, there is definitely the case that there's more and more people who are professional politicians. Now, that's not bad per se. Like, you know, politics is a difficult business. People who've been working professionally in politics have a whole range of skills which can positively contribute to uh, you know, making political change. But when that is, as dominant as it is, it becomes a real problem. And so one of the things I say in the book is, you know, there's uh, the modern working class is much, much, modern, very, very different to what it used to be, but it needs to be more representative within the Labor Party. So, you know, for instance, put it very bluntly, I would love to see more nurses in Parliament
0: mm. because
1: I think that that closer connection to, you know, labouring people um, and their direct experiences is something which is very, really important for the Labor Party because, as with Curtin and Scullin has demonstrated, they drew upon their experience as working people Uh, to then think about the world, to then question the world that they've lived in, and then to use that to develop a platform for change. And I think that what we see right now is that the blunt reality uh, that we've all been uh, revealed, many of us knew this anyway, is that it is working people who make the world work. And I don't think you can look at anything that's happened during this pandemic and not see that the people who've been on the front lines, the people who've been, uh, you know, most clearly understanding the dynamics of what's been happening and what needs to be done, are uh, working people, essential workers, as the term has been recently. And it needs to be said, drawing to your previous point, disproportionately women who have been uh, in the positions of work who have been at the front lines of this crisis and then who have continued to experience gender discrimination uh, and so on. Like, those experiences, the reality of life, what that means and how you change it, these are things that we need in our parliament. And so I think that's a sort of thing that it would be wonderful if uh, there was more and more working people who were being elected into... Uh, parliament or you can distill it all very very quickly about my ideas on where the labor party and other political parties need to go which is we need more nurses in parliament
0: <laughs> well thank you for and, that. We
1: need, and we need more cleaners and we need yes. more um, you know, people from a whole variety of different parts of life who have not been appreciated for the work that they do for the understanding that they have and for the skills that they have which have not been mobilized simply because they don't you know occupy parts of uh you know professional realms that other people appreciate, but as we've seen now, they are vital, they are essential, they are the people who make the world work. People like this should be in parliament and having, be able to contribute to the running of our country in a more direct way.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, congratulations, Liam, on this book and also on gaining your PhD in history at the University of Melbourne. And um, no, doubt the, no doubt you've found even more areas to look into now that you've um, discovered or further discovered the amazing early lives of these two men, John Curtin and James Scullin. And, uh, yeah, I do hope that you, um, oh, gosh, enjoy the rest of your historical research.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's... Um being a historian is wonderful uh, because it's possibly one of the most nerdiest things that you can do, but it means <laughs> you just get to spend your life sort of talking stories about extraordinary people who've tried to change uh, change the world. I mean, you know, that's a, it's a pretty wonderful thing to be able to engage with and to think about. And, mm-hmm. you know, but one of the things that I think is most important about this story is that Curtin and Scullin at this time were called so-called ordinary people when they were young. You know, this term ordinary, which I find really weird because I only ever tend to meet extraordinary people who want to change the world? But you know, the, the real story is that people who come together for a social movement who want to change the world can do so, and that's a, a message which is, you know, it's from their time but it's directly relevant to us as well. Is that the way things are, are, not the way they've always been or always have to be, and there's always the possibility for change if people believe in it enough, come together and work for it enough. Sometimes mm. it can take a long period of time, but you can change the world, and that's the you know that's the message that I think is the most enduring from their time to us.
0: Yeah, it's living proof.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much, Liam, uh, for chatting with us. I really appreciate it.
1: Not a problem. Thank you so much for
0: having me. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.